And so uh, if you have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to turn to Judges chapter uh, 7. We're going to read the last few verses of chapter 7 before we move into 8. We've spent the last three weeks learning about Gideon in the book of Judges. Uh, God called Gideon to deliver Israel out of the hand of Midian. But when God called Gideon, Gideon wasn't ready. And we've talked about how God wants to do stuff with us. And sometimes we're not ready either. And so we watched, uh, we watched the process where God prepared Gideon to where he was finally at a place where he was able to trust God enough to do what it was God was asking him to do. God calls all of us to serve him. And sometimes God calls us to serve him with deeper commitments. We can always tell when we're resisting God because our attitude changes towards church, Christians, the Christian life. And so we saw what happened with Gideon where God... You know, the scary part is if God calls you and asks you to do something for Him, uh, it really depends on Him on whether He's going to be persistent or not because if you tell Him no, He may just move on to somebody else. He's going to get what He wants to get accomplished and you just may or may not get to participate. So it was really nice to see that God was very patient with Gideon and very compassionate and stayed there with him because he had determined, God had determined, that Gideon was the one who was going to do what he wanted to do. Well, last week we saw that Midian fell. The Midianites that had been coming into Israel and raiding the place, taking all the food, all of the livestock. So just when harvest time was coming, they would come in and they would just leave the land destitute. They'd been doing it for seven years. And the people had finally had enough. So you know, you have to think about the fact that they went through that for seven years before they cried out to God. That, uh, that time it took to humble them. You know. And last week we did. We saw how Gideon uh, and his army defeated these Midianites. And we remember how that happened. God reduced this army of 32,000 people down to 300 and uh, the 300 men, they really didn't have to do much of anything outside of just show up. You know, they, they took elevated positions around the Midianite camp and they did break the jars and hold up a torch and yell, sword of the Lord and sword of Gideon. And God did the rest. The Bible tells us that God threw that army of 135,000 into confusion. And they began to attack each other. And so this swarm of locusts began to devour themselves. It was a miracle. But it was a miracle that was designed to teach us that we need to depend upon God instead of ourselves. So think of it like this. The, uh, it didn't really matter if it was a million-man army or 32,000 people or 300 or just five. The size of the army really didn't matter because the victory was God's. He was the one who decided who won. 
He's the one who decides the cast of the lots. So those, every time some dice gets thrown in the casino, God determines how those dice are going to roll. It's him. And uh, the problem is, is that are we going to give God the credit for it or not? You know, so if, if 30,000 30, men had defeated the Midianites, they would be tempted to brag and think, well, we did it ourselves. That's what the Bible actually tells us. That's why Jesus or God reduced this army down to 300. Well, by the end of chapter 7, the survivors of this Midian army are on the run. They would, uh, remember how they, they would come in like a, like a swarm of locusts and they would just eat everything. And they would come in and tell us how they sat in the valley, the valley of Jezreel and how they just kind of sat down. They weren't swarming anymore. They just kind of sat down eating. You know. Well, now they are on the run. Now they are in a desperate attempt to escape from Israel. And we haven't read it yet. In chapter 8, we're going to find out that there's about 15,000 men who have survived from this battle. And uh, you're also going to find out that Gideon has all 300 men. So 135,000 people began to devour themselves and it was reduced to 15,000 men. And Gideon's army is still intact. Didn't lose anybody. Didn't have to do anything. And we're going to find out that these 15,000 men that are in this mad dash for the Jordan River trying to get out of Israel... Uh, have two princes and two Midianite kings. And they're on the run. It's the head of the snake. And so Gideon doesn't want him to get away. And so he sends out messages and he, he calls for the other tribes to come and help. Help us head them off at the pass before they can get across the river. And so this is what happens when these tribes join in. We're going to begin reading in just verse 23 of chapter 7. It says, then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh. Those are three tribes. And they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim with this message. Come down to intercept the Midianites and take control of the watercourses ahead of them as far as beth and the Jordan. So all of the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took control of the watercourses as far as beth and the Jordan. And they captured Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Median. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. While they were pursuing the Midianites, and then they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And so we notice here that they've killed these two princes and that they've named the, the locations where they killed them uh, after the, to memorialize uh, so there's the rock of Oreb and the wine press of Zeb. These were where these two princes were captured and killed. So men from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, they pursued Midian. Uh, and I, I, I can't apologize. I just think these maps are so important. <laughs> but I'm sorry. I just, I just think they're so important. They help, they help visualize what happened. Um, if you look at that word Issachar, um, to the upper right of it, there's the little body of water. That's the Sea of Galilee. And out of the Sea of Galilee is the Jordan River. And it runs south. And you can just see the beginning of the Dead Sea. 
So the, the Sea of Galilee runs down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea. So if you go back up there by the Sea of Galilee, and then you go the, to the left a little bit, there's Isca. Isca, Isca. Yes. And uh, that's their land. And if you just, I think it's like right above the middle of the name, you can probably see Mount Tabor and Mount Mora. And that's where this incredible battle occurred in the Valley of Jezreel. When they surrounded the army and they, they broke the clay pots and they screamed, the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon, and they held up the torches. And that would have been right up there in between Mount Mora and Mount Tabor. And so these guys, these Midianites, are making a mad dash to the Jordan, but they're coming kind of south, east. And so if you look across the Jordan, you should be able to see a city called Sukkoth. And so Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh, Gideon's men, are all pursuing them towards the Jordan right there at Sukkoth. And the men from Ephraim are coming north and northeast to try to head them off too. getting ready to read it, what we're going to find out is that Gideon's men are last. The tribes of Naphtali and, and Asher and Manasseh, they're last. Ephraim gets there first. And there's going to be quite a battle right there at the river. It's going to be an ugly battle as 15,000 men are crossing that Jordan. And the men of Ephraim are trying to stop them. It was a bloody battle. And the majority of that army got away, kept going east. But in the process, the men of Ephraim captured those two princes. And they're there when Gideon and the other fellows show up. Now, if we go backwards in our minds a little bit to chapter 4 in the book of Judges, and we think about Deborah and Barak, and how... They were at that Valley of Jezreel too. And it was a, it was a different situation where the, the Canaanites had these iron, iron chariots and they were a massive army. And they were all in the valley. And they had the Israelites trapped up there on top of Mount Tabor. And you remember that God brought in an incredible storm. And He turned that valley into a flooded mud bath. And they were all stuck. And they were being swept away by the thousands into the wadis. And those that survived were climbing up Mount Tabor and they were met by Israel. That was the battle of Deborah and Barak. And in chapter five, the entire chapter is a song of praise to God. But we don't see that here with what happened in with Gideon and these fellows. Matter of fact, God is going to kind of fall out of the narrative almost completely. We've all heard the phrase of a slippery slope. Um, it's the idea that you make one bad decision, maybe it's a very small, seemingly insignificant bad decision, 
but it leads to more bad decisions and more bad decisions that are of a greater scale until ultimately you've slipped way down into a place where you're in trouble. That's the slippery slope. It's the idea of giving someone an inch and they take a mile. Um, there was a book written about giving a mouse a cookie, but as soon as you give the mouse a cookie, he asks for a glass of milk and so on. And so this is the slippery slope. Well, what we're about to witness with Gideon is, is not good. His story doesn't end well. There's some good at the end, but mostly bad. You know, I, when I was little, in school, we would read books in, in school, and I remember like the, where, where the red fern grows, and Old Yeller, and they're fantastic books. But the dogs die, you know, it's awful. So it's like, you know, whenever there's a movie on that's where you know someone's got cancer and they're going to die in the end, I don't like to watch that movie. I don't like it. Um, I don't know why, but every once in a while I watch it, you know, we're watching the movie and uh, it's terrible. And so that's how I feel about Gideon because I just... Because I, uh, I identify with Gideon, and you know, as, far as I was studying this a lot, you know, um, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because I like him, and it's just hard to do because he starts messing up, and it's a, it's a sad thing to see. And this should be a warning for all of us. Because we don't want to make the same mistake. Last week we talked about how Saul at one point, you know, saw himself as small in the eyes of, in his own eyes. In other words, he didn't think too much of himself. And that was when God made him king of Israel. But you have to stay there. You have to keep that humility. You can't lose it. And so when humility is lost and when we, when we take our eyes off of God and we stop following Him, our downfall is certain. So in the, in the, in the incident with Deborah and Barak, you know, after, after the battle, everybody was so excited. And they would give God the credit and they were praising Him. Well, after they've routed this army, this huge army in the Valley of Jezreel with Gideon and his men, and the other tribes have joined in in this big chase down to the Jordan, and Ephraim gets there first, and there's this battle. And yeah, a bunch of them did get away, and they're still headed east. The snake is still heading east. But there was a great success. And so there's this meeting of the mines at the river. But look what happens. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. The men of Ephraim said to him, he was talking to Gideon, he says, Why have you done this to us, not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they argued with him violently. So he said to them, What have I done now compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizer? 
God handed over to you Orb and Zeb, the two princes of Median. What was I able to do compared to you? And when he said this, their anger against him subsided. Ephraim had their feelings hurt. They felt left out. If anybody's ever came to you and they got themselves in a jam and, and you're like, well, if you'd have called me in the first place, this never would have happened. That kind of an attitude. But Ephraim, the men of Ephraim were mad at the wrong person. Because you remember back in chapter 6 what happened. Gideon was weak. His faith was weak. And God was always trying to prop him up and encourage him. You can do this. And he was patient with him. But at one point it says that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, came upon Gideon, took control of him, and he formed an army. And he formed this army that ended up being 32,000. And when God did that, when the Spirit of the Lord, when the Holy Spirit was working in Gideon and had control over him, it was God who called Zebulun and Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh. It was God who decided not to call Ephraim. So Ephraim, if they're going to be upset with anybody, they need to be upset with God. Now, this is the perfect time for... Because remember what we talked about, how, how when God got Gideon to that place where he could trust him, Gideon was humble. And he wasn't trusting in himself anymore. And uh, he actually, you know, was able to step out into thin air and believe that God was going to be there for him. Because that's basically, basically what those guys did, you know. If those guys broke those clay pots and started yelling, you know, around the camp and God wasn't there, those guys would have been in big trouble, you know. Well, now is a perfect time for Gideon to have said, Hey, you guys, just, just remember what's happened, what the Midianites were doing to us for seven years, how brutal it's been and horrible. And we finally cried out to God, and the angel of the Lord came to me, and I was such a, a jerk, you know, and I, I didn't even believe it was Him, and I didn't believe the message was from God, and I, I argued with Him, I was cynical and sarcastic, and I even made Him prove it. And then I went and tore down the, my dad's Baal statue. And I thought the whole city was going to kill me. But it didn't happen. And then God took control of me. And He's the one who formed this army. It wasn't me. God did it all. And then I was still too scared. And I put out a fleece before God twice. And then I was still too scared. So He sent me down there and He let me hear what the guys were saying that, and that the Midianites had lost heart. And there was visions and dreams that they were receiving. And they, they had no stomach. And then when we did it, the three guys said, look, we're all, none of us even got a scratch. This is all God. That's what Gideon should have said. Humility. But instead we find him violently arguing with them. And then he becomes the world's greatest diplomat and he begins to appeal to their pride with flattery. And he says, well, what have I done compared to what you've done? And the pride of Ephraim liked that a lot because once they had been recognized, their anger was silenced. Well, at this point, it looks like everyone but Gideon and his 300 men go back home because it's the 300 that cross the Jordan to continue pursuing these Midian kings. 
I don't know if that's good or bad, right or wrong. I don't know if the other tribe should have stayed or Gideon said, no, you guys go back home. I don't know what happened. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that Gideon and those 300 men crossed the Jordan and set out against the Midianites. So let's read that. Judges chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. It says, Gideon and 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. And he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give some loaves of bread to the people who are following me, because they are exhausted. For I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Sukkoth asked, Are Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hands, that we should give you bread to your army? And Gideon replied, Very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmunna over to me, I will trample your flesh on thorns and briars from the wilderness. And he went from there to Penuel and asked the same thing from them. But the men of Penuel uh, answered just as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he told those men, when I return in peace, I will tear down this tower. So they were exhausted, but they were still in pursuit. Now, uh, Sukkoth is... uh, Oh, and you know what I didn't do, you guys? Look at this. Right before I change it, see where Sukkoth is? That's kind of where we're at. It's just there on the side of the Jordan River. I wanted to show you this. Look at this. I showed you that high ground that, that the Ephraimites took on the other side of the Jordan. It's pretty neat. Sukkoth is about three miles east of the Jordan. And this other town called Penuel is about five more miles east of the Jordan. So that gives you an idea where this is taking place at. Now, these two cities are uh, in the territory of the tribe of Gad. So they're Israelites. These are Jewish people that are saying, no, we're not going to help you. And, you know, in, in, a, in a human respect, I can get it because, you know, this massive army of 15,000 guys and their kings have come marching through their town, headed that way. And then a little while later, Gideon and these 300 men come up and they're exhausted and starving. And so these guys in these two towns are thinking, eh, I don't know, these guys, the kings will regroup. They're going to come back. And so we're not going to stick our neck out for you. And they didn't have any faith that God was going to do this. And so how did Gideon respond? You know, he wasn't the the wise diplomat with Ephraim. Now he's just coming at him straight with brutality. Okay, when I come back, I'm going to... It's that same word, discipline, uh, that you you do with the wheat in a threshing floor. So I'm going to come back and thresh you. And he told the other city, I'm going to tear down your tower. Maybe Gideon thought that he had righteous indignation. Maybe he thought that he was in the right. But something seems off, doesn't it? If we think about everything that God did up to this point, and we see that Ephraim reacted with pride. And then we see that Sukkoth and Penuel, the tribe of Gad, were afraid. They were too afraid to stick their neck out. They decided to play it safe. And then here's Gideon, 
who has apparently forgotten how God treated him when his own faith was weak. Verse 10. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor. And with them, that's just a plain. It's not a city. And, uh, and with them was their army of 15,000 men who were all those left of the entire army of the Quidamites, the people from the east. And those who had been killed were 120,000 warriors. Gideon traveled on the caravan route east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked their army while the army was unsuspecting. Ziba and Zalmunna fled and he pursued them. He captured these two kings of Midian and he routed the entire army. Well, Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harris, and he captured a youth from the men of Sukkoth, and he interrogated him. And the youth wrote down for him the names of the 77 princes and elders of Sukkoth. And then he went to the men of Sukkoth, and he said, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna. You taunted me about them, saying, Are Zeba and Zumana now in your power that we should give bread to your exhausted men? So he took the elders of the city as well as some thorns and briars from the wilderness and he disciplined them. He disciplined the men of Sukkoth. And he also tore down the tower of Penuel and he killed the men of the city. Well, first of all, before we go into all of that, we don't want to miss the fact that these 300 men routed the entire army, 15,000. So God is still in this. God was all about chasing down those two kings. He was all about it. But that doesn't mean that, God's, that Gideon's behavior with Sukkoth and Penuel was right. And I've thought about this. I've, I've wrestled with this. And, and I will be honest with you that I'm not completely sure that what he did there was wrong. There's, there's some question I have in my mind just because of how bad those guys were and how they sided with the Canaanites they sided with the Midianites against their own God you know and so there's an aspect there where I can see why Gideon was upset about it I can see why God would be upset about it but I don't know we remember when Deborah and Barak were calling the tribes to come and help there were tribes who didn't come there were several and God didn't strike them dead. Deborah and Barak didn't head on over there to, to beat up on them. And it's just kind of like Gideon is driven with some revenge here. You know, he talks, talks about how they taunted me. You mocked me. So now I'm going to pay you back. Since when do, do we whip him? You know, he's whipping his own countrymen. And he didn't just tear down the tower. These guys ran into that tower to get, to get away from him for safety. And he tore it down and he killed them. You know, where's, where's the humility? At one point, Gideon was afraid too. He was just like them. And God didn't treat him that way. I don't, I, you know, we can judge Gideon all day long, but we have to remember that when someone apologizes to you, that is better than any kind of revenge. You know, 
If he came back humbled and said, you know what, I, re- I was mad at you when we came through. I was hungry and tired. But God's delivered this army over into our hands. And I've been thinking about it. And I understand why you guys were afraid. And then they would say, yeah, we're sorry. And then there's peace between these tribes. There's no enmity between each other. It just would have been a better way. But that's not what happened. And then to make it worse, we're going to find out that part of what was motivating Gideon was revenge against these two kings. He knew them. We don't know that until now. So let's keep reading in verse 18. Gideon asked Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? They were like you, they said. Each resembled the son of a king. And so he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And then he said to Jether, his firstborn, get up and kill them. The youth did not draw his sword because he was afraid. He was still a youth. And so Ziba and Zalmunna said, Get up and kill us yourself, for man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up and he killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. What kind of a question is this? What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? That question takes us a bit by surprise. Apparently, these two kings at some point in the past killed Gideon's brothers. We didn't know that. And so we're left to speculate when that might have happened. We know it didn't happen during the battle because all 300 men were intact. We know it didn't happen as they were fleeing from the valley because the 300 men were still intact when they ended up at the river. So it had to happen before any of all this. And the fact that they didn't have to kill them indicates that maybe it wasn't in a battle at all. Maybe they were trying, maybe they got caught trying to hide food in a cave. Remember how they were doing that? They were living in caves and hiding their stuff in caves. Maybe they got caught. Maybe his brothers got caught threshing wheat in a wine press. Didn't have to kill them, but did. And that's when he said, you know, if, if, that's when he said, uh, when they answered him, they said, they were like you, each resembled the son of a king. Well, well, that's a strange statement too. Why would you be looking at Gideon and thinking he was just like those guys we killed at Mount Tabor? Was there some kind of uh, adornment or something that Gideon was wearing that his brothers always wore that would connect them? Or were these kings just trying to flatter Gideon? Oh yes, I remember killing those guys at Tabor. We didn't realize that they were anybody special. And now we can see that you're in charge and you're their brother, so they were just like you. They look like sons of a king. So these guys are thinking pretty, these kings are thinking pretty fast because they know they're in big trouble. Then look at what Gideon does. He 
He uses God's name in that statement. That, that statement just seems so untruthful. You know, if you'd have let them live, I would let you live. Gideon is on this mad dash across the plains there trying to capture the snake's head. There was never a moment in Gideon's mind that he wasn't going to kill these two kings. And to throw God's name into that statement, it's really sad. And then he asks his son to get up and kill him. And, and maybe that would be an honor and a humiliating to the kings, an honor to his son. I don't really know, but Gideon just seems so disconnected from his son. And at the stage of life his son is at, for him to have asked him to do that. And so he embarrassed his boy in front of all of those people. Well, let's finish the chapter, beginning in verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my sons will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And then he said to them, let me make a request. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, we agree to give them. So they spread out a mantle and everyone threw an earring from his plunder on it. The weight of the gold earrings he requested was about 43 pounds of gold. And that was in addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants and the purple garments of the kings of Midian and the chains on the necks of the camels. Gideon made an ephod from all of this and he put it in Ophrah, his hometown. And then all Israel prostituted themselves with it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the Israelites and they were no longer a threat. The land was peaceful 40 years during the days of Gideon. Jerubal, that is, Gideon, son of Joash. And he went back to live at his house. Gideon had 70 sons, his offspring, since he had many wives. His concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon's son of Joash died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizrites. When Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves with the Baals and made Baal-bareth their god. The Israelites did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the power of the enemies around them, and they did not show kindness to the house of Gideon for all the good he had done for Israel. So they asked Gideon and his descendants to rule over Israel because he had delivered them from Midian, which we know is not right. And Gideon responded properly. He said, the Lord will rule over you. But then he began acting like the king. He collected a tax from everybody. He set up an ephod in his hometown. He had multiple wives, and uh, multiple wives usually indicates political alliances with different people. And he even had a son through a concubine from Shechem named Abimelech. And Abimelech is, you can't get a good, you can't get anything good out of this, what his name means. Abimelech, it either, it either has three meanings. Melech is my father. Melech is a pagan god that we found worshipped in places like Ebla and Ugarit and Phoenicia. Or the word could actually mean 
the divine, the son of the divine king, which again would be referring to one of these Canaanite gods, or the king is my father. An appropriate name for Gideon, who was not the king. So uh, later we're going to read in chapter 9 about Abimelech, and he talks about all of Gideon's kids as part of the dynasty. They were next in line for the throne. And so even though Gideon said no, everything about what he was doing was saying yes. We know what that's like because we can say the right things but not mean them. You know, when we're going through something bad, we can always say, well, it's in God's hands or God works all things together for good, but it may not really be how we feel inside. Now this ephod that he built, this is a, like a vest. It's a sleeveless tunic that the high priest wears. And uh, it was made of gold and, and fine linen. And in the front of it was a breastplate that had 12 stones. And they were uh, in four rows. And they represented the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And inside this ephod was a, was a pocket that they kept the umum and thummim in, which was used for discerning God's will. And I don't want to I don't want to chase that rabbit, but it was a, a way that sometimes they would ask God for direction, and it was through the high priest. And you have to remember that, that God established the government for Israel, and he, he put him at the top, just God. And God would work through the people, through the Mosaic system of sacrifices and through the priesthood. And so it was the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, uh, to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And, and it was uh, the high priest who wore this ephod. It was the high priest who, who used this effort to discern God's will. So Gideon might have said something like, you know, I'm not the king, but I am an oracle. God does talk to me. And so he wasn't wearing the ephod. It says he erected it in his hometown. And so it kind of became like an idol. And when people needed information or guidance, they would come to him. And it was, it was basically bypassing the priesthood. It was a form of idolatry. And it tells us that all of Israel prostituted themselves with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his household. You know, a, a, a prostitute gives up something priceless for very little. And it's because sin is just for a season. You know, would you trade your life for happiness to now, for eternal life, or an abundant life? Sin is just for a season. And here we have a judge who is supposed to deliver Israel from pagan conquerors and to turn the nation's heart back towards God and here in, the, in this cycle, this, the wheels are starting to fall off. This cycle is starting to deteriorate. It says that there was 40 years of peace. That's the last time we're going to see that in the book of Judges. The cycle is falling apart. And so now the judge himself is turning the people back to idolatry. Now, to say good things, Gideon trusted God. He delivered Israel. He declined to be king in a way. And he did return to Ophir. 
And he did maintain peace for 40 years. Verse 35 tells us that Gideon did many good things for Israel. But on the other hand, he turned them back to idolatry. You know, worshiping God outside of the Bible uh, is, is idolatry. And upon his death, the nation exchanged that idol for Baal. We need to be very careful about the things we ask for when it comes to money, jobs, responsibility, authority, success, when we're looking for recognition. Sometimes these things can be our downfall. You just have to look at people who've won the lottery. You know, I know you guys have seen that movie Fiddler on the Roof and, and uh, that poor Jewish farmer, all he had was a milk cow. And he was in the hay, in the, in the barn, he's throwing the hay. And he sang that song, If I Were a Rich Man, you know. But he, at one point, he looked up to God and he just said, Would it be a shame if I could just have a small fortune? But it wasn't what God wanted for him. We have to be very careful. When we look at what happened to Gideon, we can see that there are uh, some of these things that we think we need or want can lead us into big trouble. Gideon was very much like Saul because where success and power, uh, they slowly began to corrupt their humility. And uh, we can avoid so many of these problems if we will continually renew our commitments to God. In my closing statement, I would say that that is the solution to all of this. Um, I just love getting to death, and <clears throat> um, I know he's in heaven and wishing he hadn't made so many mistakes. But um, God is very gracious. He's very gracious with all of us. And so, uh, what will protect us from falling in the same, the same mistakes, what protects us from doing that is a daily renewal of your commitment to Christ every day.